Welcome to episode number 93 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast we're building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about management of change in combustible dust handling operations. And we're doing that with Bob Petrochko, Senior Process Safety Consultant with Dustcon Solutions based out of West Palm Beach, Florida. Bob has over 27 years experience with a major chemical corporation before moving into biotech for 16 years and before moving into process safety consultant role with Duscon Solutions. He said, I focused throughout his career on things like root cause analysis, process safety management, and in particular has, has worked across several industries handling combustible dust. So Bob, I want to say a big welcome and a big thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate you having me. We're excited to have you here too. We had an interview with Timothy Hennix from Duscon back in episode 28 of the podcast on recent changes to NFPA 69. Particularly, we talked about SIS, safety integrated systems, and SIL, safety integrity levels, and where that's going with the NFPA standards. I was talking to Tim recently about the topic of programs and dust hazard analysis, programs like management change and hot work and contractor programs. And he mentioned that Bob had wrote this really good article, this white paper, about management change and how to implement that in facilities handling combustible dust. So we have this article, it's entitled, Creating a Management Change Process. And we'll have that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 93 if you want to access it. But that's really the kind of material we'll be going out through in this podcast episode. We're going to talk about what constitutes a change, where do MOC requirements come from, how to get started with your MOC program, and give an example of an effective program that Bob's been part of or that has seen in, in industry. So, Bob, I guess the, the best place to jump in, and it really is the crux of management of change, and we get this question a bit, what what is a change and maybe even what isn't a change that we should be concerned about in, in dust handling industries? Well, first of all, change encompasses uh, a long list of things. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious, such as uh, technology changes, which are represented by either major changes or even minor process changes. Then along with that, which will flow will be uh, typically job tasks or procedural changes Process materials as well, and that includes raw materials. And raw materials could represent uh, a change in supplier, not just the change of the raw material itself. Uh, or even the supplier might have a process change that follows through and could impact uh, what you're doing. So knowing that uh, as well can have an impact. So you know that's all important to that category. An obvious change is an equipment change, different piece of equipment, additional piece of equipment, but. Also keep in mind that a replacement in kind is excluded from the change category. Facilities change uh, in and of itself, for example, you might be operating inside of a uh, dust handling process and you take a wall down in a large building and that creates a problem because now you have the potential of increased fugitive dust uh, accumulations spreading out over a large area. So that you know, prompts uh, evaluation of a problem like that. And then even staffing changes. People come and go, you might have an additional uh, person added to a shift or people removed or positions changed. So all those kinds of things have to be considered. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I kind of broke it down to three categories, jobs and staff changes. So we'll say people changes, um, raw materials. Um, is your material coming in different particle size or drier? And this happens if you switch a vendor, if the vendor switches their process. Or if even you switch your process of where you're getting your your feedstock from, that can all affect that. Um, then the technological, which could be both facility changes and your actual processing operation. 
you mentioned replacement in kind is excluded from a from an MOC, a management change program. Can we give it a little bit of a definition around replacement in kind? What what is that then? Well, let's say you've got uh, let's say you have a grinder. It's uh, it's a particular make, and uh, it's uh, you've you've had it for twenty five years. And the parts are wearing; they're hard to find replacements, and the equipment manufacturer still makes the same piece of equipment. And so you replace that piece of equipment with a new one so that uh, you can reduce the uh, maintenance attention that the old one required. No, that makes sense. And I can see how that fits for equipment. Is there something similar maybe for raw materials or, well, job staff is always going to be a change unless you've found somebody that was the, you know, just as smart and knew just the same things that the the original person knew, (laughs) which is probably not going to happen. But the raw materials, is there like a, a replacement in kind approach there that might be considered? That's that's a really good point. Uh, and a lot of operations will have that defined through purchasing, through supply chain, or R&D is inputted or tech services inputted. And so uh, what's not what's what's common in industry is that uh, you'll have a sheet describing the process material with the specifications uh, laid out in detail so that if, uh, as purchasing normally does, they're looking for the cheapest supply all the time, uh, you'll have some several manufacturers already pre-qualified that you can uh, use. And if uh, you want to go to a different manufacturer that's on a pre-qualified list of a product or material meeting those same specifications, that can be done without going through the MOC process. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that's helpful to to lay that out. So we have a good idea now what, you know, what is a change and what isn't a change. That's step one, I'd say. Step two is just where do the requirements for having a management change process come from? That comes from NFPA 652 in the 2019 edition. That's in chapter eight, section 12. And what, uh, what kind of things are outlined there? It's, it's pretty simple what's outlined there. They describe uh, what the changes are, as as I just went over that list. In addition, they also describe the procedure that should be written uh, would address the following things. Uh, The basis for the proposed change, safety and health implications, whether the change is permanent or temporary, excluding the authorized duration of temporary changes, uh, modifications to operating and maintenance procedures, employee training requirements, authorization requirements for the change, and the results of characterization tests used to assess the dust hazard if conducted. So those things need to be incorporated in your own management of change uh, procedure uh, that you'll follow in your uh, organization. Uh, Then it also lays out uh, what we just described where implementation of uh, MOC is not required for placement kind and that uh, design and product procedures documentation shall be updated to incorporate the change. So it's a short section. It all makes sense. It's pretty simple. Uh, No argument there. The difficulty then will be in translating that into an actual uh, process uh, that the uh, standard does not speak to, doesn't need to, but that's where the challenge rests, and that's why this white paper was written. Yeah, and I really enjoyed when I was reading through the white paper getting your perspective, because, you know, you have a pretty long history in different industries. So you can bring that all into, into understanding how to release these sort of programs. I did pull up 
the uh, NFPA 652 document. I might take a look at some of the specific things in, in there and ask you some questions about it in a moment. But I think in terms of the program, if a facility owner, operator, equipment supplier, or consultant that's working with a facility that doesn't have a, an MAC, MOC program today, what are some of the first steps they should be looking at doing then? Great question. I would say ground zero, have a well-documented DHA. The reason I say that is because in order to conduct a good management of change process, you have to have good reference material to start with. And a DHA is going to incorporate all those critical elements that are needed. Okay, so you've got that as a beginning point. And uh, over time, that'll expand and increase. You'll have a better uh, body of knowledge to reference, but that's going to be your best starting point. Okay, once you have that in hand, the first thing you have to recognize in creating a management change process is you have to satisfy three critical success factors. The first one is management support. Uh, as a very minimum, if you're not supported by management at the site level, uh, management of change process is not going to go anywhere. Uh, it's not sustainable to implement and, uh, and manage such a process uh, from the bottom up without management holding employees responsible for that. That's number one. Number two, you have to have a technical expertise to evaluate the management of change. And this falls into two levels. Number one, you need people in the organization who understand the technical details of the production process. That could be, that would typically be uh, somebody in engineering or in summer operations where you don't even have an engineering uh, department. It might be the uh, manager on site or on staff that could fill the role. Or uh, typically you also find uh, your maintenance team might be the most expert in the technology. But it's gotta be somebody in the organization who knows the most about the process technology that's operating on the floor. Second level of technical expertise you need to have is someone who understands the applicable standards, the NFPA standards such as 652, 68, 69. Okay, now you may not have someone inside the organization that's an expert on these standards. So the reason I bring this up is it's you have to have the expertise to at least know what you don't know so that you then know that you have to go find that help and to know where to go find that help. Now, it's not so daunting that uh, you can't uh, become an, in an inside expert on the applicable standards. Uh, but by the same token, these standards that aren't referenced on a daily basis uh, could seem overwhelming. So it's not uh, unreasonable to uh, expect people to go outside of their organization and find that help through uh, consultants like myself in interpreting those standards and making sure they're all brought to bear. But uh, all that, again, goes back to if you have a good, well-documented DHA for starters, uh, you know what standards are referenced and where to go back to uh, take a look and have a good starting point again. The third element uh, or critical success factor that's important in having a successful MLC process is uh, related to communications. All the stakeholders need to be identified and included and communicated to announcing the proposed change so that you have the proper feedback that you need to know how to go forward, okay? 
So those three things, management support, technical expertise, and identifying the stakeholder reps to be included in the process. When you've got uh, those critical elements laid out that you know you have to meet and you've got people on board to help you meet that, then the second part of this is really the process of establishing what the procedure is going to look like. It starts with assigning an owner to the process. And this could be the quality manager or the safety manager, uh, typically speaking, or it could be even somebody out of engineering. But somebody has to own this process, is going to sit down, write the procedure, and make sure it's, it's followed properly throughout, uh, throughout its life cycle. Uh, once you have that, then the next question is, okay, how far do I go in building this process? Uh, this becomes this this becomes a, an early stumbling block, and I can speak from personal experience uh, when I served as stint as quality manager, and was motivated to create this process for my site. Uh, how do you get something like this off the ground? And my best advice would be follow the eighty twenty rule. Start simple, build your way up to the needed level of complexity uh, that's required over time, but don't try to address every element in 100% detail before you roll out a process. The important part of rolling out a process is, as I described in the critical success factors, is getting everybody on board to know and understand that this is coming, lay out a working procedure for starters, and then just get it going. And it'll develop and get better on its own. And um, you don't have to try to figure out all the details up front. Just get something going that meets the criteria that's already laid out in FP 652. Then the third element uh, of this is defining what a change is. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit already, Chris, but uh, uh, this gets a little complicated too. But very simply, I would say, it's distinguishing between the ranges within predefined boundaries from changes that require an effort to implement. So in other words, you're going to find a lot of resistance at this stage of the game because, and, 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 I, and I could speak as an engineer when I say this, but your engineering group will typically be the most uh, resistant to implementing a change like this because after all, engineers are hired to come in and make change. They're making change by making process improvements. And uh, if they're not doing something that results in change, they don't have a job and they don't want to be bothered by now as they see it, a higher level of red tape and hierarchy. And, and that doesn't seem reasonable. And then a lot of people will also think that um, uh, we don't have time. We hardly have time to do what we're doing now. How do we have time to uh, uh, review all these changes that are coming along. So uh, defining what a change is, is an important first step. And I would really advise at this stage of the game, don't try to impose upon the organization the idea that everything has to be covered. Start out simple, knowing you're going to miss some things. And then as uh, you go along uh, over time, you're naturally going to bring in more kinds of things that you recognize are changes that can impact the process and the safety aspects of it. And the process will grow uh, of its own. So again, don't try to include, you know, 
too much too fast. You know, you'll miss some things, but you'll miss fewer things by getting started and you'll add those other things later on as you go. And then the last part of this is assigning functional representatives to document the change proposal. So in other words, uh, how do you get a change uh, into the system? You have to have somebody to uh, communicate that change and you have a lot of functions that are represented in your organization, all of which should be included in the process. And, um, and I'm talking about functions like all the ones that we know, uh, the first ones that would come off the top of our head would be safety, engineering, production, uh, but then others which are important to the process, quality management, QC, marketing and tech service even, product management, purchasing, supply chain, R&D. Okay, all those people, all those functions will have a reason to introduce a change uh, that ends up being impacted on, on the production floor. And so identifying representatives from each of those functions that can uh, communicate that change uh, is an important next step. So that's sounds like a lot of steps, but there are a lot of things uh, to take into consideration. And that's, uh, that's how I would uh, advise getting started and in creating a process. Yeah, it makes sense to me. It reminds me of the saying, perfect is the enemy of the done or perfect is the enemy of the good, I think is the quote, but perfect is the enemy of the done. So if you want to have a perfect system, you may never have a system because you didn't get started. So it's better to, to get out there and have an iterative continual improvement of your, of your management change system. Exactly right. So we're, we're going to go into an example maybe and talk through some of how everything sort of fits together. But there are a couple of things you mentioned there I want to dig into. One of them was around your, your first success factor. So you mentioned three success factors, management support, technical expertise, communication, and, and stakeholder identification. But on the management support one, this is a, this is a really important one. And we do get emails occasionally at uh, Dust Safety Science where, where folks will be asking about this if they are an, an operations manager or an engineering manager or a health and safety manager, and they see the need for this sort of thing. Do you have any tips on how they could go about getting that buy-in from their managers that, that this kind of program is needed? And, and maybe it's even wider across combustible dust. Maybe that's a DHA is needed. Or how do they go about you know getting people on board and demonstrating that this is important to do? That uh, that comes down to person-to-person uh, -person interaction. It comes down to uh, personalities, actually. It comes down to uh, management uh, position on uh, how they view the importance of safety for the operation. Is this, uh, are they doing a THA to uh, check off the box or are they doing it because they know they have a need and they really want to uh, have a, a safer operation running? I mentioned here in the paper that at the very minimum, you have to have uh, top management support at the site level. Okay. And what I mean by that is uh, large corporations uh, have many sites spread out throughout the country, globally, et cetera. If you don't have the attention to this and, and the importance of it coming from the top guy at the site, it's a no-go situation. But sometimes it even goes beyond that. I've seen it already, uh, where even the top guy at the site needs the support from the corporate uh, staff as well. So it works its way up. But basically, uh, you start at the ground level by, you know, talking to your boss and uh, getting 
he or she on board. And then in turn, they go up the chain talking to their uh, next level of management, uh, getting uh, that person on board and working all the way up. Sometimes it's, 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 a, it's a tough process. It's a long process. It's an iterative process. And sometimes it's not. So it could take a lot of work. It may not. But that's the part of this project uh, that really has to be done first. And as it's moving off the ground, you can start the work of designing the procedure uh, and when I say it's an iterative process, it may require demonstrating uh, what the procedure might look like so that they are also convinced as to uh, why it's important and why it's not going to be an overburdensome process to be added to the workload that already exists. And you already mentioned that engineers like to make change. Engineers may not like to be managed so a management change program could be difficult for engineers to stomach. <laughs> but the other half of that is, uh, you hear about this, about staff training. So what if, and the, the, the comment is, what if you train someone and spend all that time, then they leave the company? The, the response to that is, well, what if you don't train them and they stay? So, <laughs> you know, you can put all this effort in and what if we have to do more every time we make a change? You know, that's, that's one side of it. What happens if you don't? If you don't, you can end up in a case where you know, Imperial Sugar has management change backgrounds to it, uh, but being forced services in, in BC. And I would bet um, a large percentage of other instances that we see from staffing changes, from everything, it, it really ties back to knowing how what you're doing is going to impact things down the line in time and impact things down the line physically in the technological level as well. Um, so you got to do it. It's got to be a critical part of your process safety management process. It is mandated in NFPA 652, the most recent versions of that, including um, 2019 and, and the other one that you mentioned as well. In there, it does have some discussion around documentation, um, includes the owner operator shall establish a program to implement a process to manage um, training records, equipment inspections, DHAs, um, incident investigation reports, contractor records, emergency response plans, and, and other things. Do you have any just suggestions or of how sort of documentation aspect of management change programs should and, and can best be implemented? And, and then maybe we'll go into an example of, of what this might look like overall from there. Yes, I do. And that's a super good question because um, management systems overall uh, depend on each other. It's an integrated uh, setup. And so, it's going to sound obvious and maybe even a little bit silly to a lot of people, but I really kind of look at documentation retention as a keystone of, of the quality of management change process and everything else that goes with it. So NFPA uh, lays out the list as you just uh, described. One of the things they mentioned is process and, and technology information. What is that? That's, that's a, that's one element that needs to be expanded so people could really understand what that means because that's so important. Documentation, uh, all this documentation, incidentally, is your body of knowledge. Uh, and you also mentioned about uh, people coming and going, leaving, you train them, they're gone, you got to bring somebody else in. How do you do that? How do you retain 
uh, the knowledge that you need to run your process in general and also safely, you have to have it documented. It has to be documented well and has to be added to and revised as, as time goes on and as changes happen. So under the process of technology uh, information, the kind of things to include, uh, to be included there as it relates to uh, combustible dust safety are a list of your dry materials that are, that are handled along with their explosibility characteristics so that they're filed and easily, easily available. And it's important to know as well what's combustible and, and explosible and what is not. Uh, that might seem you know, kind of obvious, but actually I've had questions in my own mind when I've looked through the list of materials and, uh, and wondered if they were or were not and uh, have had to compile that information myself. So it's important and useful to have that available on hand. PFDs, general arrangement drawings, plan and elevation drawings, uh, P&IDs, that whole long list of drawings. Out of that whole long list of drawings, I find the most useful uh, type of drawing available for uh, management change, uh, DHA reference, or PFDs. Uh, you need to know the process flow. Uh, once you know that uh, from equipment to equipment, once you know that, then you can dig into the details afterwards. But if you're starting with uh, P&IDs, that's not usually the best place to go to first find out uh, what's happening in the process unless you really know the process well inside and out. Included also are a list of SOPs containing instructions that are specific to maintaining combustible dust safety. So in any type of operation uh, or in many operations, you're not going to have only dust handling operations going on. There's going to be some version of liquid operations and some crossover between that and dry handling. And so you'll have a lot of SOPs, but uh, out of that long, long list of SOPs, uh, you should identify in a document uh, which of those SOPs contain instructions that are specific possible to safety. So you can go look there right off the bat in evaluating a change. And if you're evaluating a change, you, of course, need to bring up the SOPs related to that area. And if there are SOPs that don't include uh, safeguards related to combustible dust safety, the management change process might uh, result in you adding some aspects to that. And then that SOP needs to be added to the list as well. Also for documentation, uh, combustible dust safety training materials is another good place to start uh, in reviewing uh, the material that you have on hand so that you can do a good job of evaluating a given change. And then also a list of the applicable NFPA standards. If you know what standards are there, then also a link to NFPA.org where you can access those standards uh, free uh, online. So having, having that list of information uh, represented in or, or summarized in one document, and then if you're if you're maintaining your documentation digitally, uh, which all larger organizations do in, in, in one way or another, then including links to where these other uh, documents uh, are uh, makes it really easy to go to one place 
click on those links and then pull that material uh, in front of you immediately. If you're in a small organization, uh, you're not so digitally set up to uh, file your information that way, at least have uh, this list with references to where and what file cabinet, what the file name is, where you can find this information. Because when you need to evaluate a change, you're not going to remember right off the top of your head all the different pieces of information that are useful to reference. And having this list in one place is a really great place to uh, to start. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I made a, a big list of, of things that should be included, uh, but the, the audience will probably have to, to listen to the replay of this again to get the, the full list written out because <laughs> there's, there's a lot to it. But it, like you said, the first thing is to get started, to add the first bit in and then add the second bit in and then make it better and improve it over time. One other thing I'd like to add to that, uh, I mentioned dust hazard analysis, management of change documents as, as, as they build up over time. But a dust hazard analysis response action plan is also a super good reference to refer to because when you get a DHA and you're responding to it, you may decide through your own analysis that not everything that, that that's there that's recommended needs to be done as it's described. There could be alternatives you come up with, but having that laid out and and and, and a rationale documented for it as well is is just as important as the DHA itself. So just didn't want to leave that part out. No, and I like that. I mean, that's DHA is a requirement and it's important and it's pretty useless if you don't implement anything at the end of the day. I mean, it does identify the hazard, so it's not useless. I guess that's maybe being too severe. But having a DHA implementation plan, as you called it, or an implementation plan, um, actually we call it a DHA response action plan, which I like that, is a, is a critical component so taking that identification of all the hazards and then how does this apply to us and what is our rollout plan or implementation plan or our action plan on that i think it's a critical thing to, to highlight so i appreciate you adding that to the list as well i think it might be interesting we, we talked around a lot of these parameters and again this information's all in this white paper we'll, we'll uh, put in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 93 um, i know there's an example in the paper too but we can use whatever examples best you, but I think it might be good to, to walk through just an example process requiring an MOC um, and, and what some of these steps look like. And I know we're not going to be able to cover all the different pieces of it, but just to give the, the audience, someone who's listening, an idea of what this, this might look like at the end of the day, I think would be very helpful. Okay. Well, I like to use an example of a scenario from a small scale operation, a mom and pop size type operation, if you will, because this can demonstrate on a very simple level, what uh, the process should look like. And once, once you can see this, understand those elements, then it becomes a whole lot easier to figure out how to expand the process to cover a larger organization or a, lar a larger operation, larger numbers of people. This example also demonstrates the importance of management change as well. So take, for example, a small wood shop. They're getting ready to install a new saw that requires changes to an existing dust collection system. Okay, to give you some background of this example, uh, this is a small organization that employs 13 people total, including the owner. And they work uh, in the operation from nine to five, Monday through Friday. The owner and the production supervisor normally collaborate on operational changes together. But then routinely, uh, every day, 
the whole staff uh, gets together in the break room for lunch. And uh, during the lunch period, everybody's talking to each other about what's happening. And so because there's few people and everybody has a big stake in uh, how the business runs, they know everything about everything. And so any ideas, any thoughts about changes that go on, you know, everybody gets gets to hear it. It gets they give their feedback. And so it's kind of an organic process where uh, this takes place naturally. So the scenario here is a dust hazard analysis was completed at this facility three years earlier. Safeguards were implemented within 12 months. And uh, that's your framework that you've got some uh, reference material to uh, look at when you get ready to evaluate a management change. Now, the business of this uh, wood shop is they've been making rustic bookcases over the years, doing the same job, same way, day in, day out. And now they want to expand their product line by adding a rustic end table with a book storage. And in order to do that, they need to add one more saw to their operation. They have two saws one sanding station, now they want to add a third. And in addition to that, they have a dust collector that sits outside. So I'll first mention the potential consequences of not following management of change. If given just that simple sounding change, you're going to add one saw, one new pickup spot for dust collection. Uh, If you don't follow that change, you won't know that uh, what happened was when you added that new pickup station, the air velocity within the ductwork dropped below the minimum that's required to keep the solid suspended in the airstream. So now when you start up, you're going to start, material is going to start falling out in the horizontal duct sections until the cross-sectional area is, is small enough to where the velocity can pick back up and the material continues to be carried through the dust collector. So this happens, you're not aware of it, but what you just created was now a, an unforeseen and unmanaged fire hazard situation inside your ductwork related to the buildup of material there. So the way you go about uh, finding this is your procedure, which follows the guidelines in NFPA 652, is laid out, can be laid out in a simple one-page form. Uh, as a checklist of things to be included in the review. So you start out by uh, noting at the top, you know, what your what your change title is, the type of change is you're adding new piece of equipment, and then you describe your basis of change, which is you're installing a third saw, identical to the existing two, alongside the two existing saws, a new pickup hood is going to be added, and you want to ensure your baghouse inlet line velocities will be maintained above minimum to ensure ducts remain clean. So what has happened uh, in between, what has happened up to this point is everyone's been notified that this change is coming and some people have, uh, and the owner has gone to his file cabinet, pulled out the DHA, taken a look at it, has been refreshed on the issues that need to be uh, considered in an operation like this, which would include minimum line velocities uh, in your dust collection system so that uh, materials don't salt out. And then there's references to the standards there that talk about uh, when and if you need to add spark detection uh, and extinguishing systems, that kind of thing. So having made that review, then 
the owner can then come and fill this form out. And that's how he or she knows to add the line that says, ensure the bag has in line velocities are maintained above minimum to ensure deducts remain clean. Uh, then one of the checklist items is results of dust testing. Okay. In this operation, there's no new results because they're handling the same material. But in, in another operation, you may be adding a new material or a new product. And this might uh, remind you to uh, look for a piece of information that doesn't exist. And uh, then, you, then you would go and uh, proceed to find that information so you, know, you have it on hand. It's, 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 it's necessary for some of the change evaluations. Then you have a safety and health impact section. And in here, you talk about the new saw will be positioned so as not to interview it, interfere with access to exits or comprise or compromise the space requirements around existing equipment. Personal exposure to increased dust generation will be mitigated by installing new process ventilation pickup point. Increased frequency of housekeeping may be required due to increased generation of fugitive dust emissions from running a third saw. This is an easy one that can be can be overlooked uh, very, very easily. Uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, incorporated here because now the evaluation has been given. Rebalance the airflow by adjusting the blast gates, recognizing the uh, potential concerns, you, you know to do something like this. And then also a direction given in this section to inspect the dust collector duct work after the new operation to confirm that it's clean. So now you've got You've done your analysis, you know what to look for, you laid it out so that you have a record of things to do uh, not to be forgotten. Then there's a section for, is this permanent or temporary? This is gonna be a permanent change, you'll list it that way. Are there operating procedure revisions required? Okay, if yes, then you know fill those out. If no, list it and the reasons why. Maintenance procedure revisions are required. Okay, in this case, the saw is gonna be added to the preventive maintenance schedule and will not impact current staffing. So we address staffing here as well in, in, that, in that form. Training requirements, okay, in this case, none, since the new saw is identical to two existing saws, but if it's a different type of equipment, then that would be filled out. It's also important to include uh, who the change was discussed with, list the names of employees. Uh, so that if there's questions about this change after the fact, you know who was involved in evaluating it, you go back and ask them questions later. And then equally important to have in the, in the form who it was reviewed and approved by uh, so that you know you have some accountability for the change that took place. Uh, design documents updated, okay. Documents that you have on hand, make sure that was done. Uh, that's one of the hardest things that any organization as in, in trying to keep updated, but it's important. But then the last section of this is after startup checks. Okay, you've listed earlier, here are the things we need to do after we start up. And then this documents the results of those after startup checks. So here, there are two findings. Number one, the fugitive dust accumulations did exceed the maximum allowable eighth inch thickness at the time of the scheduled high level cleaning. So then uh, that cleaning frequency was increased from once a month to once every three weeks, and the housekeeping procedures were updated accordingly. And then the second uh, finding was that the duct inspection showed that the dust buildup of one week of operation was already apparent. So 
the response was to increase the fan speed to return the airflow to minimum line velocity or install spark detection and, and fire extinguishing equipment and ductwork. So you can see there are a lot of steps of this thing that came from a small organization. The point of this is to say that even though you're a small organization with a simple operation, making a change could have some significant consequences. And if you have a disciplined, formal way of going through that, you'll catch all these things and maintain the safety of your operation between one DHA and the next. Yeah, I really like that example. And I would encourage the the listener to um, check out this white paper. Again, we'll have it in the show notes. But there is this management change form that Bob was talking through is there. And you can kind of see how things are laid out. They got the type of change, equipment, technology, job tasks, staffing, and you you know put an X in the, the one that is. And then it walks through all those elements that Bob just talked about. And the if I had to summarize it, it would be, you know, step one, review your DHA and, and fill out the, the management change document. Step two, what is that document telling you? And in this case, it was telling me a couple of things. One was that a new saw might increase future dust and it might also decrease line velocity leading to dust accumulation. So the outcome was to of that was then to review future dust and review the line velocity. Among other things, they had things like emergency exits, training requirements, like these all came out of that that management change analysis as well. But the two ones in terms of technological factors were check for fugitive dust and check for line velocity. Um, and when they did that check, they realized that there was heightened fugitive dust accumulation. So they had to increase their um, scheduled cleaning frequency. And there was dust buildup in the duct or signs of dust buildup in the duct. So they had to increase, I believe, the fan speed or or look at um, installing a spark detection system. So you can kind of see how filling that out gives you a systematic way. And you said a good, we'll say a systematic way, but also a, you know, a direct and, and almost professional way to look at these changes. Say, how does this affect everything else going on? Um, what reviews do we need to do? And then how are we going to make decisions based on that? And I, I really like that. So I think that we're probably getting close to the end. Is there any other one thing around this management change um, or even combustible dust more broadly that you want to leave the audience with before we close off for this episode? There's one other quick thing, uh, Chris, and really didn't get into it. Um, and it kind of goes back earlier in into the discussion when we're talking about, you know, how you really make this process work uh, when you have this, that many people included as stakeholders and management and so on and so forth. I want to leave people with the idea that it really is a simple process in practice. And I look at it as a two-part system. Number one, when you want to uh, introduce a change for consideration, it could be written up as a very simple two, three-liner, just like I described this one. And then you can send that out to all the stakeholder representatives of all the functions across your organization. And if, if you have a digital platform like SharePoint, uh, workflows, that's an outstanding way of doing this, but the concept is the same. Get it out there so everybody can see what the thought is. And then uh, it's, it's simple enough that, that it doesn't take a lot of time for people to take a look at it. If it catches their attention, uh, some in tech service, uh, somebody in R&D, They'll make a comment on it. Uh, and that's a way to get feedback 
so that you can know what are the things to take into consideration when considering that change. So then that's step one of the notification process. Step two then is now you drill down to uh, the critical few functions, people that will evaluate the change in more detail. That could be safety, production, engineering, and engineering might lead, lead the analysis. And then that's how you get to filling out this form to that level of detail and go forward. So it's something that uh, really doesn't take uh, any more time than what's necessary. And, uh, and everyone across the organization you'll find will be very participative in the process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a great place to, to leave this episode off with, Bob. So I want to say thank you again for putting together this white paper um, for the work that you and, and the rest of the team at Duskon Solutions are doing um, in, in industry handling like combustible dust. And, and thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Chris, for having me. And uh, I'm, I'm available and happy to help uh, anyone answer any questions related to the subject or others. Perfect. And we'll have um, Bob's contact information or a way to connect with him in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 93. So thanks again, Bob, and I look forward to talking again soon. Okay. Thank you. Hope to talk to you again soon too, Chris. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Bob Petrochko, and we've been talking about management of change in combustible dust handling operations. Uh, we went through a lot of different aspects of this topic, starting just with, you know, what is a change and what isn't a change. We talked about replacing in kind and how that might apply to equipment, how that might apply to materials and purchasing, how maybe even that applies to job roles, and then the other aspects of change. So what does it look like when a job role staffing requirement changes, training requirement changes, new staff comes on, when your raw materials changed, when your facility changes, maybe you've taken out a wall, you've added a wall. This brings me back to my my days of working in a, an engineering office where they, they had a few new offices and all of a sudden the place was smoking hot because the HVAC was affected. Nobody looked and said, oh, if we just add walls here, we're going we're gonna to completely unbalance the system. Um, fortunately, that didn't lead to any hazardous outcomes for, for us as the workers, except for being really hot. That's a good example of a management change that wasn't thought about before you start making these facility changes. Um, and then Bob talked through... Uh, how to do this in practice with his experience in industry and with his experience as consultant. So we mentioned three success factors, getting management support, having the technical expertise, both about the process and also both the standards and guidelines and regulations um, and just expertise around combustible dust. You need both of those. You need to know people that are knowledgeable about your specific equipment and then people that are also more knowledgeable about the general um, requirements around combustible dust. The third there is communication stakeholders. You talked about what does this process look like, assigning an owner to the management of change process, um, writing what the procedure looks like, what is a change, how does it get input into the system, how does it get managed through its life cycle. And the big star that I had here on my page was, this is going to be a step-by-step and iterative process. And the key is to really get started and to improve it over time. Uh, we talked about documentation a bit and gave a long list of things that are should be considered here. And, and if you, the list sounds daunting, I'll point you back to the asterisks I just mentioned, get started and, and improve it over time. And we also walked through what this looks like for a small facility. In this case, we talked about a small uh, woodworking facility around the size of 13 employees and what this could look like. And you can already kind of see how, okay, this might apply at a, a larger facility, maybe with 130 employees and how that could be expanded out. But it's good to get a an idea of, of how this operation looks at a smaller scale. And Again, this is all included in this white paper that Bob wrote on creating a management change process. All the links to that show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 93. 
as well as a way to connect with Bob as well. So I just want to say I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast as always. We have a safe and productive week ahead, and I want to thank you for everything you're doing. Industries handling combustible dust around the world to make them safer every day. Thank you.